I apologize for any of you who were here last week. That I have that was poor communication on my part. So I'm, I'm sorry if you if you came and there was and the doors were closed after you did all that work to shovel out of your driveway and brave the icy roads to get here. Um, I had a couple other things I wanted to say. A uh, couple other things. Um, one, we've, we kind of threw a little curveball today. We actually started at 10. So um, we're going we're gonna to try that for a while and see if it works. Um, we're going to try to start around 10 o'clock. So um, just you can come when you want to, but I just don't want you to feel silly if you walk in and um, we're already started. We're going to try to start around 10. Uh, another thing, we have a email newsletter that goes out once a week. If you're interested in being a part of that, if there's a, you can go to our website, stonebridgemarietta.org, and there's a little subscribe link, and then you'll know what is going on in the church. That'll be the main way that we get announcements and all that jazz out. Uh, I don't know if y'all heard this story or not. Uh, maybe a month ago, there was a little blurb. I saw it on foxnews.com. It, uh, several of the news places picked it up. There was actually um, a brother and sister who got married in England. I don't know if y'all heard that or not. They were... <laughs> that would be the correct response. They were... Um, they were twins who were separated at birth. They did not know that they... They did not know they had a twin, and they were separated at birth, and then they, um, I guess, met later in life, and maybe that's what we're all looking for. We're all looking for ourselves, maybe. I don't know if that's a... And they found it, and so they they got married, and the way it came up was, um, I, I don't know how it... They didn't give a lot of details of the story, I guess, to protect these people's privacy, but I, I'm assuming they took some type of blood test at some point after they got married, and um, I'm sure that whoever gave the test was alarmed. So, that's unfortunate when things like that happen. I don't know any other word for it. We live out of our identity, at least um, out of our perception of our identity. Um, You've heard people say that perception is reality. Well, that's not true. Perception is perception and reality is reality. Your perception is reality if it corresponds to reality. If perception was reality, then these two folks should still be married because they fell in love with each other and courted each other and all that stuff. The perception was this is a husband and a wife and this is a good marriage. The reality is it was a brother and a sister. And so the marriage got annulled. It didn't really matter what the perception was because reality is you just don't do that kind of thing. So same for us, I would say. Perception is not reality unless your perception corresponds to reality. I've got these glasses. Um, they're not mine. They're, they're tinted pink. And so everything I see is pink. Tinted. Jason looks like he's got a nice pink hue. Everyone in here is tinted pink. That is my perception of what's going on. Is it real? No. You're not pink. And you're not pink. And you're not pink. And The building's not pink, but that's all I can see because my glasses are tinted pink. If my glasses were tinted blue, then you'd all look blue. And if they were tinted green, you'd all look green. And that's my perception, but it's not reality. It's just my perception of reality. And we all, I'll take those off so you can maybe take me a little more seriously. They all, 
they, we all have glasses on. And our glasses color how we look at life. And our glasses also color how we see ourselves. And if your glasses aren't tinted correctly, and by correctly I would say the way the Lord wants them tinted, you're living out of a lie. And it will cause you to do really bad things like marry your sister. If you don't see reality correctly, and if you don't see who you really are according to what God says about you, it's gonna, that's what you live out of, and it's going to cause you to make all kinds of really bad choices in life. And that's not a condemning thing, that's just a reality thing. We all have glasses on. Maybe a better picture is we all have contacts. If you wear contacts, you know, you can put them in and you forget about them. If you're not, if you don't wear contacts, you don't understand how something could be in your eye and you can forget about it, but you can. You just, you can go all day and forget about it. Some people, you know, you fall asleep in them and you wake up and you can't open your eyes because they've gunked up. That happens. And you can imagine if your contacts were tinted, everything you see would be blue or pink or red or whatever. And that would be your perception of reality and it'd be wrong. We've all got them. And the tricky part is we don't know that we have them. I think that I'm looking at life with clear lenses. And you think you're looking at life with clear lenses. And I think I see myself clearly. And you think you see yourself clearly. I don't realize that I've got pink sunglasses on. Because I've had them on for so long, and it's a part of who I am, I just I can't see it. I need somebody from the outside to tell me. I need somebody else to tell me, you're not, it's, it's not right. You're not seeing reality. Your glasses are tinted. But the problem is, so are yours. So I can trade my pink tinted glasses for your blue tinted glasses. I'm not sure I'm any better off. Then I just see things your tinted way instead of my tinted way. But neither one of them is reality. We need revelation. We need something from the outside to tell us this is how it is. This is how life is. This is who God is. This is who you are who I am, so I can live out of that. And God's the only one who can do it. He's the only one that doesn't have glasses on. He's the only one that sees clearly, and there are ways that he tries to kind of bring that revelation to us. When I say revelation, don't think of anything super spiritual. Revelation is just something you don't know. Revelation is something you don't know that you couldn't find out on your own. It's something that has to be revealed to you. Hence, revelation. Something that has to be revealed to you. It's not some super mysterious thing where you've got to go into a trance and meditate and then you have... It's none of that. It's just when God somehow lets you see something that you couldn't figure out on your own. And that's what we all need. I need to know what color my glasses are tinted. And God's the only one who can tell me that. And He's the only one who can tell any of us that. And He does it in several different ways. He, through the Bible, people who are critics of Christianity usually talk about the Bible being a fairy tale book. And to me, honestly, they haven't read it. It's about the realest book I've ever read. It deals more honestly with life than anything I've ever read. Go through it. The people who are supposed to be heroes all have massive character flaws and they put them right in the, right there for you to see. They're not trying to cover anything up. Nothing's being glossed over. There's a lot, you can disagree with the Bible on a lot of different levels, but you can't say it's a fairy tale book. Read Cinderella and read the Bible. They don't, they're not the same. They're not the same. I think it deals more honestly with life than anything else out there. 
And that's one of the ways God tries to bring revelation. Here's, here, this is what reality looks like. Read this. Another way is just kind of directly, if you're a Christian, the Bible says the Holy Spirit lives in, within you and He guides us into all truth. So sometimes the Holy Spirit will just kind of speak to you. And that's not through your ears, it's just kind of in your heart. Some sort of conscience or, you know, you kind of have these thoughts or these feelings that seem to not necessarily come from you. That A lot of times that's the Holy Spirit and He's trying to speak to you to bring revelation into your life. Another way He does it is through other people. We like that one the least, but that's the most common. He speaks to us through other people. I can't see that I have glasses on, but every one of you can. It's very obvious to y'all that I'm wearing pink glasses. And a lot of times, the way God's going to let me know that I'm wearing pink glasses is he's going to have one of you tell me. We talked a few weeks ago about the, the importance of being in those naked relationships. Remember we talked about that, being transparent and vulnerable with other people? If you don't have those type of relationships and there's nobody who can tell you, you that you've got glasses on because nobody knows you well enough and you're not being honest enough with people for them to be able to tell, say to you, you're, you're not seeing this correctly. You're off base a little bit. That's probably the most common way that the Lord speaks to us is through other people. So this morning, one of the things I want to talk about has to do with our glasses and we all have them on. And um, there's not really anything I can say to help you see that necessarily. We need the Lord to reveal that to us. So I'm going to pray for a second, and then we're going to read Luke 15, the whole thing. So bear with me. It's not super long, but kind of. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to um, look at this passage in Luke. God, I pray today for any of us, particularly that don't see ourselves the way you see us, I pray that you would um, reveal that to us this morning. And however that is, in your nice, gentle way, in a, a way that just kind of interrupts our thought process, whatever that looks like, God, I pray that you would show us the glasses that we have on when we look at ourselves. And God, any place where what we say about us doesn't line up with what you say about us, I pray, God, that we would repent there and we will begin to agree with you. God, I pray that we would not believe um, lies any longer, but that this morning, God, we would choose to believe the truth. We don't want to do dumb things. None of us want to marry our sister. And so, God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see who we are so that we can make good choices moving forward. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, this is Luke 15. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. That's Jesus But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable, Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. 
So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How much of my father's howard men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to, de- starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother's come home, he said. And your father's killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, You are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Many of you have heard those stories before. That's not necessarily new to you. But what I want you to see is kind of the whole setup. Jesus is teaching and these tax collectors and sinners show up. And uh, the religious leaders say, why are you hanging out with these people? They're grumbling about it. And his answer is all three of these stories. This back-to-back-to-back, these back-to-back-to-back parables that all have the same point. And it's to show God's heart towards people who are lost, towards people who are estranged from him, towards tax collectors and sinners. He tells the same story basically three different times. And if you think about that, it's pretty obvious that he was trying to make a point that he thought was really important. Anytime somebody repeats something to you three times, you start thinking, well, I guess they're trying to communicate something to me. And that's what Jesus is doing. He wants to make it very plain to everyone who's listening, including us reading it, how God feels about the lost, people who are estranged from him, tax collectors and sinners. And it's very plain through this, these three parables how he does. God seeks them, and when he finds them, he rejoices over them. If you were to look, if you go back and look at all three of these parables, you'll see some of the same phrases that occur over and over again. Um, you have this, something is lost, and if you look, every, each parable, the thing that's lost gets more and more precious. The first thing we lose is a sheep out of, one sheep out of 99, so a guy loses 1% of his sheep, then one coin out of 10, 10% of this woman's money, and then one son out of two, 50% of his kids. The, the, there's kind of this increasing level of value of what is lost in each parable. So it kind of climaxes, all three of these climax with this story of the lost son, which you've heard before, but all three of them have this same kind of, they end the same way with the shepherd or the woman or the father saying, let's celebrate because what was lost has been found. 
That's what the shepherd said, call my neighbors and friends, let's rejoice. The woman says, call my neighbors and friends, let's rejoice. The father says, kill the fattened calf. They say a fattened calf would feed like 50 or 60 people, so he's having a party. Let's celebrate. We had to celebrate, the father says. That's what he says to the oldest son. We had to celebrate because our son came home. We almost get this idea that he's compelled to celebrate because what was lost is now found. So that's the overall picture of Luke 15, is this God who rejoices when something that was lost is found. We get that. All of us are born lost. Some of us have been found. Some of us haven't. That's We're found when we come home, just like the younger son, when we recognize our need for God and we repent of our sins and say, help me, you're found. And the reaction that God has in this story is the exact same reaction he has now. We read, I think it says this, what does it say? There will be more rejoicing in heaven, there will be more rejoicing in heaven. Who lives in heaven? God. He's rejoicing when one person is found. We get that corporately. I can say, God rejoiced when Jason was found. God rejoiced when Maggie was found. What's difficult is for me to say, God rejoiced when David was found. And I think that's probably where some of y'all get hung up to. Do you realize that you're an object of rejoicing for the Lord? Really, not just, yeah, I get that because it's here, but do, are those the glasses that you're wearing? When you look at yourself, do you see yourself as one who causes God to rejoice? Yes or no? And I would say for most of us, it's not very often to never. Do we really see ourselves as someone who causes God to rejoice? We probably think we cause God some problems sometimes, that we're annoying because we keep asking for the same things, that he gets tired of us making the same screw-ups over and over again, or that he doesn't really know that we're down here somewhere. But to really say, yes, I caused God to rejoice. I'm the object of his rejoicing. Even some of us who kind of get that on some level, that doesn't feel right to say because it sounds cocky and arrogant. And we're supposed to be humble and meek. And God would never rejoice over me because I'm just a whatever I am. I'm a lowly sinner or whatever I am. That's not what he says. Three times, God says, one person comes into the kingdom. He rejoices. Zephaniah 3.17, some of you have heard that verse a lot. The, very, the, the end of it, God will rejoice over you with singing. That's what he says he does for us, and not just us corporately, but you. That's one of the great things about these three parables, is it's said about one sheep, one coin, one son. You, 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 me. God rejoices over me. He says, I had to celebrate. I had to. Because this son that was lost is found. This daughter that was lost is found. I had to celebrate. What else was I going to do? It's like this is the natural response to someone coming home. And I wonder how many of us are wearing those glasses when we walk around. If you think about your last week, did you do anything at all last week out of the fact that you were an object of rejoicing for God? Did that lead you to do anything last week? 
when things stunk for you, did you ever think, but you know what, I'm an object of rejoicing for God? When you felt alone, cut off, isolated, did you ever think, but I'm an object of rejoicing for God? Ever. I didn't. Did you? A lot of times we see ourselves, um, I think there may be three different ways that we see, there are probably others, I thought of three. One, some of us see ourselves as sinners still. I think that would be like if this younger brother had come home and he's wearing rags and he smells like pig slop and the father gives him new clothes and he's like, okay, great, I'm glad you're happy to see me, but I need to keep my old clothes on. I'm glad that you've welcomed me back into the house, but I'm going to keep wearing the rags that smell like pig slop because that's what I am. That's what a lot of us do. God welcomes us back in and he tries to... um, God says, and Paul says, it's the Lord, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, I think it is, that if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. What we say is, if anyone is in Christ, he's a, you're a new creation. <laughs> I'm still an old creation. And I don't recognize in my own life that God has said, the old is gone and the new has come. And so I choose to live out of my oldness. And I choose to live in the rags that God has said I don't have to wear anymore. He tries to give me a new robe, and I say, but not really. I'm still a pretty sorry guy. You don't know what I think about, and you don't know what I do and what I don't do, and you don't know how my heart is towards you, and so I I just need to keep on the rags because that's really what I am. And I wonder how many of you do the same thing, that your primary way you see yourself before God is as a sinner. And you are, totally. I am, yes, we're sinners. But God says that when we come to Him, the old person is dead. The old Leanne is dead. And there's a new one. Do I see myself as new or as old? And I wonder about you. We say humility is very important in the kingdom of God. We've talked about that before. It's huge. But humility is thinking rightly about yourself, not thinking poorly about yourself. If you choose to disagree with God, that's not humility, that's arrogance. Even if the way you're disagreeing with God is by thinking poorly of yourself. If the younger son had said to the father, well, thanks for the new coat. Thanks for the robe. I'm going to still wear the rags. What is that? He's rejecting the grace of his dad. That's not humility. That's arrogance. I'm worse than you are good. My sin exceeds your grace. That's what we're communicating when we choose to live in our rags, when God says you're a new creation. You get that. Some of us see ourselves as sinners. A lot of us, I think, see ourselves like the older brother does. We see ourselves as servants. You see that he says he gets ticked off and his father goes out to him and this is what the oldest son says. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. That is a picture of how he viewed his dad. I've been slaving for you. I've always done what you've told me to do. And you've never done any of this for me. You've never even given me a goat. You're giving him the fatted calf. He's gone out and spent your money on prostitutes. I've been the good son and I ain't gotten anything from you. And a lot of us, I think, can kind of fall into this servant or slave mentality with the Lord. We get it, okay, I'm a new creation, but we don't really embrace the fact that we're children of God. We're servants. And servants and sons don't see things the same way. Servants can be fired. Sons can't be fired. If, you're, if you have a servant mentality toward the Lord, you're always going to wonder if you've done enough. Have you done enough to earn whatever it is you're trying 
to earn. One of the um, biggest differences between Christianity and Islam is Muslims never know, short of martyrdom, if they're going to heaven or not. That's the only surefire way, is to be martyred, to die in jihad, however you want to say that. That's the only surefire way to get in. Everything else you don't know until you die, and they're, these angels, you've got one on each shoulder that writing down what you've done, and they're going to open up the books, and Allah's going to say, well, we'll weigh this thing out. And no one knows until they die if they've got enough good stuff to get in. So there's this sense of uncertainty and fear regarding their relationship with God, their servants. You don't have to have that as a Christian. You can know if you'll relate to God as a child. Kids, you can't fire your kids. You know that. They can drive you nuts, but you can't fire them. They're always going to be your children. And that's how we are with the Lord. When we become Christians, we're adopted into the family of God. And He doesn't, we can't be fired. Your relationship with Him is secure. Servants have to earn their keep. Children don't. Servants are paid based on the work they do. Sons receive an inheritance because of the relationship they have. And there's a huge difference between those two things. Servants punch the clock. God, I obeyed you here, here, and here this week. Why don't you do this for me? And if you don't see that happening, you get frustrated, you get angry. How come God's never done anything for me? I'm doing all, it's the older son. I've done all this for you, God. You hadn't done anything for me. When is the payback? That's not how sons act. They're not earning their keep. Everything the father has is theirs. And they just live that way based on this. That's what the father's saying to this older son. Everything I've got yours. You could have any of it. You wanted a goat, you could have had a goat. They're your goats too. The older son didn't get it. And sometimes we don't get it. God said, all of this stuff is yours. You don't have to earn it. Everything I've got is yours. Live like it. Take it. Enjoy it. Use it. But we don't because we live like servants. Servants also keep a distance. Sons live in the house. And that's a big difference also. The older brother you see with him also, he never really... He says he wanted to have a celebration with his friends, which there's nothing wrong with that, but it shows he wasn't necessarily interested in developing any type of deep relationship with his father. Sons aren't like that. They live in the house. They don't have to live in the servant quarters. Their desire is to be as close to their father as they can. And we miss that sometimes too. We don't realize the amount of access that we have to God because we... We relate to him as a servant and we think, well, the reason I have access is because of all the good stuff that I've done or because I've been obedient or whatever. And it's tenuous. Sons don't act that way. Those of you with kids, they ask you for anything all the time. They don't care if you've had a good day or a bad day. They don't care if it's a legitimate or outrageous request. They don't care how much it costs. They don't care what bills you have. They don't care. You're their parent and they're going to ask you. And they're going to ask you again. And then they're going to ask you again. It's a relationship of a child to a parent. And that's what God says we, we can have, but we don't. A lot of us live like servants. We keep ourselves at a distance from God and don't realize all of the things that he said, these things are yours. Just ask me for them and you can have them. The other choice is obviously to live like a son or a daughter. I'm using son, but daughter works as well. To live as a son or a daughter 
of God. If you look at the younger son, he was, if you can think about the whatever you got to have in your heart to go to your parents while they're still alive and say, give me my money. Like, think about that conversation. To go to your parents and say, while they're alive, and say, give me my inheritance, which mostly, most likely would have been land and livestock and all that stuff, and then to cash it in while they're still alive and leave. Like, he's not a good guy. And this, that's bad for us. If you can imagine having Sunday dinner with your parents today and asking them for that. Hey, mom and dad, can I see the will? Can you go ahead and give me my share? If you can imagine that, and they say, oh, well, it's the, or the, or whatever, and say, well, I'm just going to trade all that in for the cash, and I'm out. That's what he did. And this society, terrible. He shamed his dad, which shame was the worst thing you could do. This guy, this father would have been very prominent. He obviously had a lot of money. Everybody would have known. The younger one's gone. He took his money and ran. He doesn't respect his father. He doesn't love his father. Who knows what they thought? But he shamed his father, which at this point, that's the worst thing you can do in this near, this Middle Eastern culture is to bring shame on your parents. So that's what he did. So you haven't done anything worse than what this guy's done. But at some point he realizes, you know what, it's better there than it is here. It's better back home as a servant than here being free, slopping pigs. And so he chooses to go home. And it's interesting, he has this whole thing, this whole speech laid out. And all he gets to say is, Father, I've sinned against heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The father never says, well, actually you are. He just says, bring the robe, bring the ring, kill the fattened calf, he's home, let's have a party. And we're not. You're right. You've sinned against heaven and you've sinned against him. And you're not worthy to be called his son or his daughter. And neither am I. But that doesn't matter. Because we don't relate to him based on our worthiness. He says, if you'll repent, you're in. If you'll repent, you're in. You're you're adopted into my family. You become a son or daughter of mine. A co-heir with Jesus. Everything that is available to Jesus is available to you in terms of your inheritance. That's a lot. And no, you're not worthy of that. So don't try to be. And I'm not, and I don't need to try to be. But the basis for the relationship is not whether I'm worth it or not. It's whether I've repented or not. And you can do that. That's just recognizing you screwed up. And agreeing with God and saying, I screwed up. Help me. You can say that. I can say that. Help me. That's the basis of the relationship. And if you can get that, then you're a son. You don't have to be a slave. You don't have to see yourself as a sinner. You can see yourself as a son or daughter of God. You can see yourself as an object of rejoicing. As a person who caused God to have a celebration. And I wonder what that would do in your life and in my life. If just one time this week, if I did something out of that reality. If I took off my glasses that see myself as a servant or whatever and said, you know what? I'm a child of God because he said so. And I'm an object of his rejoicing because he said so. And I'm going to live like that. I wonder what that would do for me. And I wonder what that would do for you if you did that. Let's pray.